holy word. This is the eternal word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, your word has been read. It is a rich passage of scripture with much for us to consider and to adopt in our own lives. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would now help me as a preacher to speak the words of Christ and help us as your people to hear from our risen Savior and to be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In his famous book, Varieties of Religious Experience, William James describes the characteristics of people or who are new converts to a religion. And, and in his scope, he's including all religions. One New Testament scholar summarizes James's work in this way. The person who has experienced conversion typically enjoys a sense of perceiving truths not known before and has a sense of clean and beautiful newness within and without. The new convert typically begins to focus on truths that are newly perceived and is accompanied with a sense of purity, freshness, or cleanness. It's quite vivid. What about you? Can you relate to having a sense of clean, freshness, or newness about you when it comes to your faith? Can you remember when you first believed the way that certain truths became extremely clear. Do you recall what Scripture refers to as the joy of your salvation? Giving one example, listen to how St. Augustine describes how he changed when he became a Christian in his famous book, The Confessions. Augustine says, When I finally believed Suddenly, life had become sweet to me, without the sweets of folly. What I once feared to lose was now a delight 
to dismiss. Lord, you turned them out and you entered in to take their place. You're pleasanter than any pleasure, but not to flesh and blood. You're brighter than all light, yet more inward than the most secret recess. You're higher than any honor, but not to those who think themselves sublime. Already my mind was free of the biting cares of place-seeking, free of desire for gain, free of wallowing in self-indulgence, free of scratching the itch of lust. And I was now instead talking with you, Lord my God, my radiance, my wealth, and my salvation. It's one of my favorite books, and I've read it many times over the years. Augustine's describing his change of life. And with what graphic and remarkable detail. But if you read the book, and if your life is anything like his and mine, the journey of transformation that Augustine was experiencing was only just beginning. His change of life did not set him free from all struggles forevermore. All genuine followers of Jesus at some point will experience that sharpening of focus, that radiating light. But it's just the beginning of a lifelong journey. After your conversion, if you expect a straight line of progress to heaven, you are sorely mistaken. Make no mistake, there must be a conversion. There must be a moment, even if you only perceive it after the fact, when you can say with Paul, I was once darkness, but now I am light in the Lord. But that moment of transformation is the beginning of a lifelong journey in which you progressively experience that reality, little by little. As John Piper has put it, the path of the godly is not a straight line, but takes many twists and turns, requiring constant vigilance and many journeys to often dangerous places. In my experience, salvation is, without a doubt, the single greatest blessing in the world. But it is also the most difficult thing. If it's a great reward, it has been accompanied in my life by many setbacks. And for every two steps I make forward, I often feel myself taking one step back. This is why we need to be reminded of the worth and value and prize of our salvation. And then we need to be challenged again and again, to live out what God has lived in to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave his life for you, and now you are, are reminded this morning, once again, to give your life to him. You've done it once. If you're, if you're a born-again believer, you've given your life to Christ. But you need to be told, Scripture tells us, Warned, encouraged, exhorted, challenged to continue in that which you began with the Lord.
So what is this new way of life? That's my sermon title this morning, Your New Way of Life. There are three requirements that I want you to to point out. It's a very dense text. There's a lot here, but we're going to look at three requirements for your new way of life together this morning. First, look at verse 13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, that's a key word there, fully, completely, perfectly, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This first point is, in your new way of life, you must engage in an intense battle. In your new way of life, you must engage in an intense battle or struggle. Now I get the battle notion with this phrase, preparing your minds for action. And in my Bible, there's a footnote, the ESV, number one, and it takes me down and it says, girding up the loins of your mind. Now, I'm wearing a coat and a tie this morning, but if I were getting ready to get into a battle or I was getting ready to run a race, I take off my coat and tie. I'd, I'd gird up my, I'd gather up the loose articles of clothing, anything that might, that might interfere with the movement of my legs and my arms. I'd put on a belt. I'd tie my shoes. And any hindrance between me and that perfect, mature, full, complete, target, goal that's in front of me, whether it's a battle or a race, I will remove it. And you can picture a runner jumping up and down and shaking his hands on the start line. The adrenaline is coursing through his veins. He's rehearsing in his mind the course, if you're a cross-country runner or the track, and the points where he's going to accelerate or pull back to hit his pace, pace points in that race. Except in this case, it isn't physical articles of clothing that is being pointed out. He says, gird up, tighten up, clean up, eliminate all distractions in your mind, he says. The loins of your mind. About if, if your body has a waist that needs a belt, your mind has a waist that needs to cinch up the things that are flying here and there and, and dangling articles of clothing and loose shoes and distracting thoughts above all else. With this command, you are to understand that until you fully possess the inheritance which is in front of you, you must concentrate and focus on the task at hand. You said, well, I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. I'm a born-again believer. What else do I need? Well, Peter has spent the entire introductory passage, verses 3 through 12, assuring you that that great possession is yours and can never be revoked. But lest you think that the certainty and the security of your eternally purchased salvation is an excuse for you to sit back and coast your way through life, Peter says there is a battle on, it is intense, and you must gird up the loins of your mind. I think it's interesting that the battleground is described as one that is mental or non-physical. 
The race is one that it, it is run between your ears. I wonder how, how, how disciplined you are with your thoughts. In the ordinary course of your day, how many times does your mind leave the path, the narrow way? I think the mind is mentioned because it is a chief battleground for most Christians. It certainly is for me. Your thoughts are the engine of your feelings and your actions. Mark that down. Where your thoughts go is where your life goes. And so Paul writes, and we, we, we confess this in our confession of sin in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I want to commend that as a, as a memory verse for you. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. What's the next phrase? By the renewing of your mind. Your mind as it comes out of the box is not plug and play, ready to go for the battle of the Lord. You come out of the womb and out of the box ill-suited to the task at hand, and it's only by the renewing of your mind, which is a process, a continual process, of girding up the loins of your mind and focusing your mind on the race and the battle in front of you that you're going to be able to live out what God has lived into you. And to make the the point even more strongly, he says, being sober-minded. in verse 13. The mentioning of the word soberness or sobriety is an explanation of its essential meaning, which is self-control in regard to the things that you eat and drink. And so sober-mindedness is affected by the way that you carry yourself with regard to the things that you eat and the things that you drink. Use self-control in what you put into your body because it is an intense battle and you are an athlete, you are a warrior, you are headed for a mission, and until that mission is accomplished, you must be sober-minded. You have a diet that is required. I think that's what this is saying. It, It may be saying more, but it's certainly not saying less. And so what you consume mentally, physically, emotionally, the fuel that comes into your your person has a direct impact on your ability to fight this battle and run this race. Because what is required is that you fully or completely focus on the goal, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the grace that you will receive in that day. In high school, I was a two-sport athlete. I was a tennis player and a runner, and that alternated between cross-country and track. My senior year, because I thought I was, you know, something. I think that's sort of a requirement for uh, high school senior males in particular. So I wanted to push myself and try something different. And so I tried out for the 
wrestling team. I thought I was in pretty good shape. Turns out I had no idea. And I had heard that wrestlers were the toughest, were the toughest athletes on campus, and I never believed it. I mean, I'd run 15 miles in 20 degree below weather. Oh, I, I, they had me washed out of that wrestling room in like six weeks. And ever since then, whenever I meet a wrestler, I, I have to keep myself from falling to my knees and worshiping him as a god. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, sort of. My conversion to wrestling didn't last very long because I wasn't focused on the goal I wasn't sober-minded, and I had no idea how difficult it was going to be. You know, this battle idea, or athletic competition, isn't unique to Peter. The battle of the Christian life, or seeing the Christian life as an athletic endeavor, is throughout the New Testament. In Matthew 4, Jesus begins his public ministry in a contest of epic proportions, where he battles Satan in the wilderness in a contest of minds where both the devil and Jesus are quoting Scripture to one another. Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 talks about himself wanting to run in such a way, using such extreme self-discipline in his faith that he will not be disqualified, that he'll win the victor's crown. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is an intense battle. But your new way of life also requires you not only to engage in an intense battle, but to remember who you are. You need to remember who you are. I did not serve in the military, although I was in Air Force ROTC in college for a time. And I'm told and I've read and I've heard from my friends who have served in the armed forces that there is a protocol if you're captured and it has something to do with remembering who you are, particularly under duress. How do you maintain that focus Remembering whose country you serve and not giving yourself over to the enemy. The extent to which the mind can be twisted and bent and tempted and tricked. People spend their entire careers thinking about how to break a man in his mind. You need to remember who you are, is what I'm saying. Because the enemy is absolutely targeting you that you might forget your identity and slip into a kind of hallucinatory haze in which you're living and acting like you're someone else. Practicing the habits of recall isn't just a skill for school. I am a blood-bought son of the Sovereign Lord. 
I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Heidelberg, number one. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Westminster, number one. These simple phrases, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We preach to ourselves and remind ourselves who we are. We must remember who we are. What does our text say about who we are? Look at verse 14. 14 says, Peter says that you are an obedient child. But let's focus on the fact that you're a child. A full-grown man, writing to other full-grown men and women, is telling you, and I in the name of Christ through Peter, am telling you, you are children. This is your identity. And this is a blessing. Because if you're a child, then you have a father. And your father is Almighty God. And he has from eternity prepared a salvation for you which we've learned is ready to be revealed at the last time. But now, for a little while, if necessary, you must suffer trials of various kinds. You're not suffering as an orphan. You're not suffering as an alien or a reject. You're not suffering as someone without a family in need of adoption. You're, suffer you're suffering as an adopted child of your Heavenly Father. And so, you are an obedient child. That's who you are. 17, you call on him as what? As father. Even that word, as, is a reminder that you must remind yourself who God is. I'm coming to God, not as a judge. He does judge. He is judge. I'm coming to the judge as father. Peter's reminding us. We conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, so we're being reminded also that we're exiles. This isn't my home. I have a destination. I'm just a pilgrim, a wandering through. I pitched my tent. Abram had to buy his wife a grave on the land that God promised. I'll repeat that. Abraham bought the land that God had given him. It's as if I went to Pittman or Glassboro and said, I'd like to buy the property at 244 Adams Avenue when it's already mine. And this is what we are. We are exiles. We're living. The, the world belongs to the poor in spirit. The meek shall inherit the earth, but it's not ours yet. And so we're living as aliens and strangers traveling through a land that will belong to the godly one day in the renovation of all things. But now we're as strangers. Strangers to family. Strangers to success. Strangers to society. To the workplace. Strangers to our country in some ways. You're also like a slave who's been ransomed, verse 18, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. What the picture is here is that there are traditions and practices and ways of life, 
ways of life, that's my sermon this morning, which have enslaved you like chains. And worse than than man-stealing and chattel slavery in the United States of America in the 18th and 19th century, worse than that, you are being tortured and beaten and treated cruelly by the empty traditions handed down to you by your parents and grandparents, by our society, by our founding fathers. And you've been set free from those things. And the word ransom means that your slavery has ended, you have been set free. And it's been at great price, he says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so you become, verse 21, a believer, a true believer. You need to remember who you are. You're a believer. You're someone who believes. What do you believe? The text says you believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. I am a believer in God who raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. You believe that? You do. This is who you are. So you must engage in an intense battle in this new way of life. You must regularly remember who you are. And third, you need to do two things at once. Now, I'm, I'm told that multitasking, and I've actually told this to my own children, multitasking is, it's, it doesn't exist. Multitasking is simply rapid switching between two tasks. For example, your father is telling you that he wants you to do a chore, and when you're texting your friend while he's telling you this, you've stopped listening to your father and started talking to your friend about how irritated you are that your father is giving you a chore. And when he asks you what you're texting, you go back to listening to your father and say, nothing, father. That's multitasking. In this new way of life, you have to do two things at once. You have to both flee from your former passions, verse 14, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, 15, as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. So, if my former passions are here, I need to flee from them. I turn my back on them, and I pursue the holiness of God. Former passions, the things that, that captured my heart, that defined my life, that gave me a sense of satisfaction, the way I defined success, all of these things, those passions are replaced by a new standard, and it's the holiness of God. Verse 18 says something similar. 17, conduct yourselves with fear. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you're afraid of God. It means... You're in awe of God. It means that He's the first voice you listen to in the morning and the last voice you listen to at night. And He gives you 
your marching orders throughout the day. Knowing, verse 18, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, that's over here, the feudal, empty, vain, meaningless. You know, family traditions are, are, can be so irritating sometimes. Like, why do we do that? Everybody knows that that's no fun. And yet, year after year, we do the same things, or we even rehearse the same arguments. There's vanity, there's, there's futility in our family traditions sometimes. I, I think there's, there's real value to them. But they can become the worst taskmasters. And we've been freed from this, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's here. To hear, verse 21, having faith and hope in God. This both-and approach to the Christian way of life is not rapid switching, stopping one thing and starting another. You're working more on two projects at the same time, one of which may require more effort and hours than the other one, depending on where you're at in your workday. Project number one is what Paul will call putting off the old man. That's stopping certain behaviors. And the example he gives, he says, is let him who steal, steal no more. This is Ephesians 4. So the thief has to stop stealing. The drunk has to stop drinking to excess. The porn addict has to stop looking at certain sites, or the sex addict has to stop behaving in certain ways. The gossip or the worrier has to stop talking about things that aren't his or her concern. And the worrier has to stop being the, you know, the hamster wheel of the mind, constantly going over and over and over again the things that you have no control over. You have to stop that. Those are futile and empty. That's the first project, putting off the old man. And the second is putting on the new so in Paul's example in Ephesians 4, the thief is to steal no longer, but then he says, but rather work hard with his hands that he may have something to share with those who are in need. So I call this the replacement theory of sanctification, where you replace taking things from people who have need for yourself and instead making things for people who have need for others. So this project has to do with ceasing certain behaviors that are undermining your new way of life. Some things you have to stop doing. And this project is reigniting the things that are in alignment with your new way of life. The negative is hating what's killing you. The positive is pursuing what is good, true, and beautiful. Well, that's the new way of life. You might be wondering, do I really need to be reminded of something I already know? Why are you reminding me of something I'm not sure I believe? Why are you reminding me of something that I'm doing well? These are good questions. 
After all, we're in church. You're here. Is it that you're listening and you're interested? Yes. Except you. You're the only one who hasn't figured this stuff out. You're the only one who hasn't yet arrived. All of us are perfect saints. And you can look at us through the museum glass. You're the only one with a record, with real struggles, who's hanging by a fingernail. At least that's what Satan wanted me to tell you. But Jesus, whose house this is, won't let me get away with that. Jesus, who welcomes sinners, not saints, says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the one in whose name I speak. He wants you to know that he has invited you to take up his easy yoke. But that yoke involves a lifetime of reminding. The way of life that Peter calls you to requires your attention and effort for the rest of your life. So while his yoke may be easy, it does involve a cross. And it does bring you to the end of yourself. And so in this sense, Peter's letter follows a classic pattern of instruction in antiquity. Here's how one ancient teacher put it. Once the turn to doing one's duty has occurred, the mind needs to be kept in motion and trained in virtue. Now that's a pagan philosopher. I have met many, many Christians who disagree with that. That a pagan is, to, is willing to give himself more to being trained in virtue than a Christian is to being trained in the gospel. In fact, we, we want our lawyers and our teachers and our physicians to have continuing education. But for some reason, as Christians, we think once we get saved, we're good. The philosopher, whose name is Seneca, by the way, continues and says, Precepts should be permanent and familiar guests whose voices are often heard because they have the same effect as association with the sage. Their company benefits us, though we're hardly aware of it. By the way, this is a great argument for liturgy that's predictable and repeatable. We follow a a similar pattern every Sunday. You're hardly aware of it. But by the time we're halfway through the service, you've been renewed in the gospel. That's the nature of Christian worship. New Testament scholar Lori Thurin says this about 1 Peter. The main thrust of this letter is to help Christians in Asia Minor to cope with various difficulties caused by their faith. How does that strike your ears? Difficulties caused by faith. Remember, faith begins well enough in our conversion. Yet, at this time and at this very moment, just as Peter's readers were, you are being tested. You are being tempted. You are being sorted and sifted as Peter was. There's a chemistry lab, and you're in the crucible, and the Bunsen burner is heating up that metal and bubbling to the top, 
through your cries of pain are the dross and the impurities of your faith. And God, though it pains him that you're in pain, knows that as a father, it's the testing of your faith that develops perseverance. So you have work to do. Your new way of life involves engaging in an intense battle, remembering who you are and doing two things at once. Now in my case, when I became a new believer, I experienced something like what Augustine experienced. I remember the sunshine shining through my dorm window looked different to me. I didn't see little creatures dancing on the the beams, however. But something changed. Likewise, when I met my wife, when we first started dating, we would constantly share Scripture together. She saw God's hand regularly at work in her life, and she would write me letters, letters, you know, with stamps on them. Long passages of Scripture. She was urging me, and I was urging her to keep in the ways of the Lord and to celebrate God's grace and goodness in our lives. I read one of those letters, actually, yesterday. She said something like, Phil, I can... I can see that God is refining us and preparing us. And this is the scripture that I read. And I remember reading this thinking, it's an amazing woman that I'm dating, but I also thought, well, of course, this is what a Christian man and a Christian woman do. They inspire one another to move closer to Jesus. As the saying goes, we were on fire for the Lord. Yet even knowing these things hasn't kept us from major mistakes in both our marriage and in our individual lives. Today, firmly in middle age, we find ourselves bearing in our hearts the marks, the scars of many, many, many sinful choices. And we in this place need the gospel more than ever. I have never felt more like a kindergartner on the playground of God than I do today. And I asked a great saint, an ancient, fearless Christian leader, at the time he was 75 years old, I asked him, uh, this man had written commentaries and even translated the entire Bible, I asked him, Dr. Taylor, do you find yourself still growing in your faith? And he said, Philip, yes, more than ever. So as we leave this morning, since Scripture is given to us for life change and we're talking about a way of life, what are some things that you need to do? Well, if you're not a Christian yet, if you're lingering on the threshold or at the doorway looking in at the Christian party, saying, who are those weird people? What are they doing? Praising the Lord and all that stuff. I'm inviting you to to join the party, to to become a believer. This is the invitation. Jesus is calling. It was the number two best-selling book amongst all Christian books last year, and three, and 37, and 42, and 71. The entire ecosystem of Jesus calling. Well, this is Jesus calling. 
believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Do it now. Secondly, be intentional about what the Christian life should look like. Make a list. These are the things that I inherited from my fathers that are absolutely bankrupt and which I need to just take off and get rid of. And these are the things that are holiness and righteousness and peace, truth, beauty, and goodness that I must pursue or I die. And don't go it alone, thirdly. There is no way that a Christian can maintain the way of life alone. And I say that for two reasons. One, it's a fundamental contradiction in terms because a Christian is a member of the body of Christ. There is no other Christian than a church Christian. But secondly, it's insane to think that this way of life is something you can maintain on your own. And those who have been doing it longest know this the best. Do you know I met with two pastors on Friday talking about how I need more accountability in my life? I will not survive. One scholar said the new way of life, you could take this to the bank, is always a communal experience. We're a team. In this local church, we're a team together. So plug into a family fellowship group. Check out the Samson Society, the men's and women's gatherings. By the way, I'd like to, st I'd like to start another ad adult study in a book by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I'd like it to meet on Monday nights, but if I get two or three people, I don't care what night it is, let's meet together. Let me know if you, if you need that encouragement. Let's remind one another of who we are by meeting together and studying God's Word and godly works together. And then finally, share this new way of life with others in your life especially those who don't yet believe. God wants you to help bring them along. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you that you have not left your church without a witness, that your scriptures are, are before us, and they've been unpacked this morning and, and considered from many angles all regarding this way of life, the new way of life that we have been given in our salvation. Lord, I wish I were farther along in my faith, but in your mercy and in your grace, you receive me as a child and you continue your good work. Thank you for your patience and your long-suffering with your, with your wayward people. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Thank you that you do not cast off even the most meager, humble, repentant sinner. Thank you that you welcome with open arms like the father to the prodigal son. Thank you, God, that even now you're welcoming 
anew and afresh, someone who is taking the first steps of faith like a little calf or a baby horse. Thank you, Lord, that if we're burdened and stuck in our sin, that you are the redeemer and ransomer still. You can break the power of addictive compulsive behaviors. You can, Lord, set us free from worry and anxiety and every other thing that plagues us. So we're asking all of this, Lord, and we're asking you to do this work in us through Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead in his name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.